Yes, hello, Tyler O'Reilly here. Before we start, just wanted to remind everyone of Bazaar Plus, our membership program where you can get extra episodes every week. Just simply go to the link in the show notes. It's Sports Bazaar. A trophy called the America's Cup. Come and get it. Come and get if it. If you think you're good enough. The hunt for the weirdest. It sounds like you're not doing your research. It does sound like that. <laughs> the problem is I have done it and don't understand it. <laughs> Strangers. Designed this ship to comfortably house a cow. Oh, stop it. Cow out the back. Most unbelievable. They launch him across the street by spraying him with the high-pressure hose. Stories to ever occur. Listed in the Guinness Book of World Records for the greatest ever photo. In the world of sport. He actually popularised Gordon as a first name. Which is a tough job. Tough. Sports Bazaar. Cavalcade of disgruntled contenders. When the boat sailed, the crew was still nailing down her deck. Then he turns up with something that looks like a bloody rocket underneath my cockpit. This is starting to freak out people like Dennis Conn. It's time for the leaders of the hunt. This is a spa meeting, Mick. Grab your togs. It's Titus O'Reilly and Mick Malloy. Welcome to the latest episode of Sports Bazaar and the last episode in our America's Cup deep dive. Uh, It's been fascinating to date, but what better way to finish it off than going to the source itself. We're celebrating 40 years since a famous victory, possibly the most famous moment in Australian sport. What better way to do it than with myself? Titus O'Reilly and Titus, you've brought a special guest. Well, we have none other than John Bertrand, the actual skipper yeah. of Australia 2 in 1983. And I've just reread, I'd read it a long time ago, but part of our research, I'd read your book, Born to Win, John, which is so popular. In 2020, it got returned to a Townsville library. Have you heard this story? I, I have actually. Yeah. After 30 years overdue, and it had been handed from yacht to yacht on westward journeys. It had gone around the entire world, hadn't it, before it came back? It's pretty pretty cool, I think. Yeah, it still survived. I'm just surprised to learn there's a library in Townsville, but there you go. <laughs> John, you reading your book and coming back to it, one thing that's amazing, and it will be for our listeners who have gone through the whole series with us, right back to the start, is the America's Cup runs in your family's blood going back a fair way. Your great-grandfather, perhaps you could tell us a bit about him and and his involvement with the America's Cup. Well, according to my uh, grandmother, my great-grandfather, Thomas Perks, in Southampton, that's where they lived and grew up, he was involved in three of Sir Thomas Lipton's J-Class America's Cup challenging yachts in terms of construction. He was an engineer. And the Scottish engineers who were considered the best, you know, that there were, came down and stayed at my great-grandfather's home in Southampton, nine-month to 12-month build, three America's Cup boats, the Shamrocks. Actually, the title of the book came from that in terms of uh, initially it was going to be called To Take Your Home, which is an extract within Jonathan Livingston Seagull, uh, Richard Buck was the author, and uh, Bantam Books over in uh, New York, decided that that wasn't a so-called pick-me-up title. It wasn't, you know, didn't jump <laughs> off the shelf. And they said, you know, what's different about this bloke? And then they looked at my uh, ancestry and saw uh, Thomas Perks was heavily involved and said, hey, this kid's born to win, you know, it's part of the lineage, you might say. Yeah. So there's plenty of uh, salt in my veins, yeah. Grew up in Melbourne, right on the beach, basically. Yeah, you've got to have a bit of luck in life, you know, and we, my brother and I grew up in a house which mum and dad rented down at Chelsea, outside of Melbourne, and we climb over the side fence, not the back fence, because the property went along the beach, Chelsea Beach, and about a kilometre along the beach was a little club called the Chelsea Yacht Club. So we used to hang out there, and it was kind of our kindergarten, we'd sort of be up in the rafters and listen to the old blokes dirty jokes, you know, while they were putting a, <laughs> a VB around the, you know, the 44-gallon drum with a Coke in it in terms of, you know, fire and whatever. Yeah. And muck around with boats in summertime, play footy in winter and try and do a bit of schoolwork in between. What was your first boat, John? Oh, look, anything we could borrow. It was yeah. actually a fishing boat that we put a square rig sail on. Mum, <laughs> Mum bought a uh, parachute from the army disposal and cut it, cut it up into a big uh, sail. We used to paddle this fishing boat out to sea and then turn around and then sail back in. We just thought it was unbelievable watching the bubbles go past, you know, and I was six or seven years old at the time, yeah. 
And your brother and you both would do this together. And I read that you and him, when you fought over who could have the tiller, who could steer, <laughs> yeah. it had to be resolved with the family meeting. Well, <laughs> well, Dad, you know, we didn't have any money. He died when we were 15 and we didn't have enough money for the funeral. You know, we didn't consider ourselves poor. It's just the way it was. But Mum recalls the story of the fighting was so bad. We had a little sabo, 80-foot dinghy training boat. The dad had the axe poised above his head to cut the bastard in two. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so mum stopped him from chopping it in two with frustration <laughs> of those two boys fighting all the time. And in fact, we built a second boat so we could both steer our own boat. Oh, right. You just went the whole hole. <laughs> well, it's a type of conflict that would put you in good stead with the New York Yacht Club many years later <laughs> yeah, and some of right. the legal wrangling around that. Getting battle-hardened, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, you were then sailing competitively a lot. W- when did you start to think, oh, this is going to be something I'll always do. I'm going to take this quite seriously. Well, initially, I didn't like the competition. I, in fact, in hindsight, I was highly competitive. I didn't realize at the time, but I used to get very nervous. You know, in school sports, I remember almost vomiting, you know, I was a reasonable sprinter and I remember I can still smell the cut grass in preparation for, you know, the 100-yard sprint in those days at state school. And in the sailing, it was the same thing. I loved cruising around and sailing, but not really competition. But it was really 13 or 14 that I started to really start to enjoy the sense of competition. And that sort of led to winning national championships in different classes and ultimately Olympic Games and uh, America's Cup, a whole bunch of stuff. This is when the Australians sort of started to get into the America's Cup. Frank Packer was starting to fund challenges for it. And you were at university, weren't you? It sort of reads like you were planning your whole life to become the America's Cup winning skipper. What was your thesis at university? Well, first of all, let me say I met my future wife when I was 18 and Raza was 17. And she reckons she married a boring engineer with potential. So at Monash University, which is when we're going out, my thesis was the optimum angle of attack of America's Cup sales. That's some good pillow talk you've got there, John. Oh, my God. Let me tell you. You just imagine it, yeah. (laughs) So you were going deep early. You were really getting into this. That's a plan, though, isn't it? You are already have identified what it is you want to do down the track, haven't you? Correct. I uh, I had this fascination for technology, boring engineering background, (laughs) but also the concept of the United States, you know, America's Cup was a great, you know, it was an Everest of sport. And like so many people in that era, we listened on the wireless, not the radio, the wireless, (laughs) Gretel won. Frank Packer's boat. Mm. Old man Packer was the middleweight boxing champion of Australia during the Depression. So he was a tough old bastard, that Mm. bloke, you know. And he was the first to challenge for the America's Cup. I remember listening on the wireless, Gretel won surfing past a boat called Wetterly to win one of the races. Mm. And that was way, way back in 1962. So that fired my imagination. I remember. And that was the first time someone had won a race since the 30s, I think, in the America's Cup. The, so that right. was a big deal to even just beating the Americans was a huge deal, but just winning a race against them was seen as a big deal there. Yeah, and Gretel won 1962 was using an American-made spinnaker. It's a big sail that goes out front. So the New York Yacht Club, bless them, decided that as a result of that, any challenging nation has to create their own sailcloth. Yeah. So Benny Lexon, and we'll talk about Benny, I'm sure. Yeah, we will. Yes, we will. Benny said, if we ever win that damn thing, you know, very colourful language, all sailcloth for the future for the challenges has to be made out of kangaroo hide. (laughs) 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 But yeah, the New York Yacht Club interpreted the so-called Dita gift over many different iterations. Yeah. And part of it is is that then from then on, we had to create our own sailcloth. They always interpreted it. Funnily enough, in their favour, often the deed of After the facts. <laughs> After the facts. They had a real talent for it, didn't they? Look, I tell people, having lived in the US and, you know, for quite a few years over the time, that Americans will eat their grandmother if required. Right. You know, they are competitive, competitive <laughs> yeah. people. The concept of losing the America's Cup, it started off, you know, as you well know, before the US Civil War. Mm. And the Americans successfully defended over that period of time. It was untouchable yeah. by any nation. It's just part of what they were. They'd interpret it any way they liked to uh, make sure that they, you know, that they went into battle with a very strong game plan and an upper hand. Yeah. Mm. Yep. And then you were actually asked to join 
one of Frank Packer's boats, but your mum didn't let you go. <laughs> this is 1970. I think you were, you, you, she suggested you finish uni first. Yeah, well, that, that's actually true. You're right. Yeah, <laughs> thinking back on it, mum was pretty tough. So you were desperate to go, but she yeah, was like, finish your degree. That's correct, yeah. So 62 was the first America's Cup. That was Frank Packer. Then yep. 67, Dame Patty. Then 1970, Gretel two. That was, again, Frank Packer. Yeah. So I was asked to, uh, you know, come on board and be part of the team for the 970 America's Cup. And I was finishing off final year at Monash Uni University. So yep. anyway, the thesis topped the University of Engineering. Yeah. Look, I wasn't an academic student, but, you know, I just got locked into it, loved it. Yeah. Just asked my wife-to-be, you know, and uh, that's the reality of it. Went up to Sydney, tried out on the boat, went across the US, got hammered again by the Yanks. Yeah. We won one race, but, you know. Who cares? That's when you started to realise how competitive they were. Oh, yeah. That was where you realised the lengths you'd need to go to. It was just another world. You know, the US Navy, the US Coast Guard, NASA, aerospace technology, all of that stuff thrown at these US defenders. Yeah. Fronting up, you know, it's just another world. The enormity of the US of A, you know, the most powerful nation in the world then and still are. And uh, for a little country like Australia where, you know, Ocarazzi's from down under, it's just like lambs to slaughter. And you're sailing their waters too. So they've literally got home field advantage. Yeah. So hellfell are well met, but they'll kill you if required. (laughs) John, can I ask, what's in it for someone like Frank Packer? Because it then goes on to be Alan Bond and it then seems to be the succession of very wealthy men who have an itch to scratch or some need. Yeah to do this for Australia, for themselves? What's their motive? What do they get out of this? Well, with Frank, old man Packer, I think it was really, you know, to take on, you know, these people are different, you know, Packer, Bond, these characters, Baron Bick, you know, France, he challenged unsuccessfully five times. Mm. Sir Thomas Lipton, unsuccessful yeah. five times. So why? Uh, to take on the US, something had never been yeah. done. It was an Everest. It truly was an Everest. Okay. And it was this compelling thing. Someone like Ellen, it was more like moving from Ellen Bond, who cares out of Perth, to becoming a, a yes. global trader yeah. as a result of being Mr. America's Cup. So each one, I guess, had their own motivation. But uh, it was this untouchable Everest that until Hillary came along, no one had ever conquered. And yes. so it was 74 was the first time you met Bond, though, uh, for that Ellen, challenge? Yes, I just graduated from MIT in Boston with yeah. a Master of Science. And that was partly you knew you just needed, you thought being in America would prepare you better for this too. As well as doing your thesis, you're also studying the enemy, I think you say in your book. That's right. Yes, that's exactly right. (laughs) In hindsight, was it a really clear plan? Oh, gee, you know, it was all part and parcel. And Raza, you know, she was part of that program, you know. Compete in the um, German Olympics, fourth. Worse than last, a leather medal. <laughs> other than mum, other than mum and the kids, nobody cares. Yeah. yeah, you know all that bloody work, and you know, think, my God, you look back on it, it's just terrible. It's and worth. it's funny, you're fourth best in the world at something, and I you know. feel like yeah, it, you achieved you've nothing. You've let yourself down. You've let your country down, John. <laughs> we know that it is shit. It really is, you know. And then came back to Australia. Benny Lexon, he'd changed his name from Bob Miller. To it was Benny a legal Lexon. dispute, wasn't it? That yeah. he changed his name. Yeah. yeah. And Ben was the name of his dog, <laughs> and Lexham was the name of his de facto wife. So yeah, Benny was different. You yeah. Know? Came back, Alan Bond, 34 years old, yeah. technically broke wow. at the time, and he challenged for the America's Cup. You talk about chutzpah. Yeah. yeah. 34 years old, for goodness sake. He reckons that, uh, you know, when he first blew into the office, and I'd just been employed on $92 a week. Mm. Uh, as a assistant designer to Ben Lexon, okay, for the Southern Cross 1974 America's Cup Challenge. And the deal was very, very simple. He bought up 15 kilometres of sand dunes called Yanship, and it was Yanship Sun City, home of the America's Cup. This is Bob. Yeah, he named it straight away, didn't he? Sure did. <laughs> and the dream was, or the ambition was very simple. This is way back in 1973 when I first met him. He said, of course, we'll win the America's Cup. Ha ha. And then we'll go on and he will host the Olympic Games in the year 2000 at Yanship. And he believed it. <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah. He got one of them. He, absolutely. Ultimately, yeah. yeah. And I was talking to some people the other day and, you know, Yanship's thriving metropolis now. Yeah. yeah. So you meet him. What was it like the first meeting with him? Like a hurricane. Because you wouldn't have heard much about him. This was before he was really well known, wasn't it? He's really smart on his feet and yeah. empowering. There's no question about it intimidating yes you know it's all part of you know who he was 
he was a man on a mission. Now, did he have a business plan? No, but he could see <laughs> that if we were able to do this thing, that again, no nation, no one had ever done over so many cycles, that it would launch him globally as a business entrepreneur. That wasn't a great campaign for you in terms of you didn't love the skipper at the time? Correct. He's passed on. Um, look, it was amateur hour. Yeah. And uh, we got hammered yet again. And I said never again, you know, because I just came out of an Olympic campaign, pretty good, Joe Fourth, okay, you know, not bad yeah. uh, on the world stage. And yeah. uh, going into this thing, it was, you know, it's just another world of uh, unprofessionalism from my perspective. You thought from what you said in your book that there was no team in a sense, it was individuals and the, yeah. you seemed to come away with realising that if we were going to even get close, that amateurism had to go. It had to be like an Olympic focus, yeah. you know, like a military operation, you know, from my perspective, just observing the, you know, the Americans, the way they went about their business. Sure. Because around this time, this is where Dennis Connor sort of appears a bit yep. and is part of this and you're hearing about him around this time. Is this the first time you're sort of around 74, you sort of? Yes. And then I competed in the 76 Olympics in Canada in, and yeah. Dennis sailed for the United States in a different class of yacht, Tempest class. I raced a single-handed fin. Yeah. I won the bronze as Dennis did in the Tempest class. So we both won bronze. So you sort of linked from there we almost. We did, yeah. We had this kind of connection and sailed a little bit with him. Can we talk a little bit about Dennis Connor here? Because every great story needs a villain. And the villain in this is Dennis Connor. Now, love him or hate him, everyone acknowledges he was a, a master, master sailor. Look, he was a multiple world champion in the star class, highly competitive Olympic class. Mm. He wrote a book called No Excuses to Lose. If you're out design, out fundraise, out train the opposition, then there's no excuse to lose. It makes a lot of sense. And that was his bona fide. Dennis was one of the most Machiavellian operators I've ever come across. <laughs> yes. He was super competitive, both on and off the racetrack, in terms of how to kill the opposition. Yeah. You know? And I don't There's no that. mercy with him. No. And again, this is the, in the US, or let's say San Diego, you don't do lunch or you don't do dinner. If you go to lunch, you'd be careful on your back because you get stabbed. <laughs> you know? Now, I say that, you know, it's a throwaway and that's not true, yes. but regardless, you know, you've got to be careful when you're playing in this game. And again, you know, that's this whole issue of they were not in the business of losing. They were never in the business of losing. And did he like playing mind games with you? Was this like, you know, obviously we know what happens on the water, but off the water, he, from the time he arrived, do you think he was trying to get inside people's heads? That, but how to destroy a syndicate financially? Wow. How to destroy a syndicate financially? In other words, undermining the funding base. <laughs> Like we are, Jesus. this is war. Yeah. <laughs> He's playing the long game, yeah. This, this is war. So these syndicates that pull together the money to buy and fund these attempts, he yeah. would figure out ways to what, hurt their sponsorship or any way of them being able to actually pull the money. It's like a political campaign where you're trying to stop your opponent fundraising almost. We can learn plenty from the pollies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you say one bit about mm. Dennis, which I liked in your book. You said you were watching him, you were sailing with him. You got, he knew you were good and it was like he thought he was studying you and working you out. And then it seemed like John was watching him more than he was watching him. You said at some point in the race he did something clever or he did it well. And you said, I realise at that moment Dennis is a man who has to prove himself to himself all of the time and he has to have his ego fed but that only he can really feed it. Hmm. So he's just very, he's always trying to outprove himself. Well, look, you know, I've never met a world champion that's a normal person. You know, you've got to be screwed up <laughs> yes. and you've got to be different to get out of bed to do extraordinary things. Yeah. You know? So Dennis was, was a world champion. You know, he was very, very good at what he did. Yeah. Yeah. So then 74 happens. Then 77, you don't go. Ted Turner wins, wipes the floor. Again. And, and you met Ted Turner? Yeah. When you were, for people that don't know, Ted Turner founded CNN and very – well, off businessman apart from that. So Ted Turner, just as a, you know, to try and give a description of the man, his father committed suicide, okay, because of financial difficulties. When CNN were close to bankruptcy, they, he couldn't meet the payroll, for example. The bankers were closing in. Yeah. And his uh, discussion with them was very, very simple. He said, if you pull the pin on my finances, I will shoot myself. Okay. Yeah. And they believed him. Uh. And they gave him more time. 
again, you know, all these characters. You know, yeah, it's amazing. Fascinating people. And CNN, luckily a war came along and it launched CNN properly. And, and he were, was a great sailor as he well. He was. He was. He's very good. Look, you know, compared to now, just amateur hour. Yeah. But at the time, compelling. Uh, for example, that was 74, 1980, I think. He was trying to uh, defend again for the America's Cup and he, he was eliminated by the yeah. New York Yacht Club. Who didn't like him, did they? No, and he didn't like them. <laughs> so he got a whole bunch of red T-shirts printed up with the Confederate flag on the back for his crew <laughs> and, and yeah, then went out to help the Australians, us. Okay. Now we're talking about the Civil War. Yeah. yeah. And one of the stories was, okay, so 1977, won the America's Cup. It was a skipper of a boat called Courageous. Yeah. Okay, again, beating Australia. I wasn't part of it. So, so the stories goes is that he was so drunk at the uh, press conference yeah. that he was trying to answer a question and then he slid under the floor unconscious. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> doing my material now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. This is in Newport, yes, in Thames yeah. Street. So you, you've got all these characters over yeah. those years, you know. <laughs> mm. 980, you get involved, brought back in, but Bond sells it to you as you're going to go over and be the... The tactician, was that what he sold it to Correct, you with? yeah, because I'd, I'd won selection for the 1980 Olympic Games. Yeah. Whereas Raza, God bless her, reminded me, we took out a second mortgage to fund all this. You know, again, we're talking about there's no money in this environment. Yep. It's just a yeah. dream. Russia invaded Afghanistan and Australia boycotted the Olympic Games. You know, certainly the sailing, the sport yeah. of sailing. And Bondi rang up and he said, John, you've got to come over to save the campaign. You know, he's a terrific salesman. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful, <laughs> you know, how you could get sucked in. And uh, anyway, I did a deal, went across, and I was going to be tactician on the boat, which yeah. is sort of number two on the boat. Our yeah, good friend uh, Ben Lexham was there, who was the uh, godfather of our first child, okay, yeah. so a very, very close friend. And he busted his uh, wrist. He had plaster cast. And I said, Benny, you know, what's happening? He said, oh, he mumbled something about putting his fist through the wall, right? Yeah. As it turns out, he'd read in the media that I was coming over as tactician and Benny was tactician. So he actually... <laughs> so Bond then told him. Yeah, well, he read about it. <laughs> and then you ask him how he did it. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a conversation starter. It was. For, for it the was. two of you. Yeah. So there's big characters on deck everywhere. I yep. mean, every yep. every name you drop or in this particular conversation, whether it's Turner or Bond or Lexan or mm. you or Connor, these are just giants. They're big personalities who are all coming to the table thinking they're the ones who can get this across the line. That's right. The Kennedy family. Yep. John F. Kennedy, the beautiful speech, uh, welcoming the Australians in 1962. I yeah. just saw it on YouTube the other day. All these characters, you know, and Ted Kennedy followed their America's Cup in 83 and Jackie was there and all this stuff, you know. American blue bloods you're really amongst, aren't you? Well, we're talking about royalty here. Yeah. You know, the American royalty are the Kennedy family. Yeah. You know? And so 80 doesn't go well and you see this is quite shambolic. Perhaps we just quickly talk about Ben Lexon since, you know, brought him up. You were close to him. But ben Lexon is the designer, famously, of the wing keel. Yeah. You said at one point it was interesting working with him because he built Australia 2 for you to challenge in 83 when you finally come on board as skipper. But you say almost instantly his mind's on like boats in the future. Like he's almost annoyed that he has to help you get the current boat right because his mind's always thinking about how can we make things better. I'll try and sort of paint the picture here. Benny was an orphan and he went to school at 9 and left at 12, so presumably he was unteachable. He was the Leonardo da Vinci of this country, and I've met some really okay. interesting characters globally, yeah. okay? He was different. One way to describe it is when he was living with the Rives family in, uh, in Sydney growing up, to wash his clothes, he'd go into the shower and scrub with his clothes on, and then they would slowly dry during the day on him. <laughs> I think Mick does something similar. Look, <laughs> after a big night, John, that can be the best course of action. But what is this? Is this just because he's an unorthodox thinker or he doesn't approach the world or basic problems like we do? All of that. Yeah. You know, he was never taught to think inside of a box. You know, part of our Western teaching, and I have a you know double degree and all that stuff. Mm. I remember my professor at MIT saying, John, until you put a problem into numbers, you'll never be able to solve it. Well, working with people like Ben, it was just another world of, you know, thinking 
Mm. It was just out there. You know, Vince Lombardi talked about lateral thinking, you know, just, you know, Mick, your, you know, your world of creativity is there's no necessarily bounds and you go from one idea to another and yep. connect the dots and so on. And that's the capacity of the human mind in so many ways. And Benny was unfettered. He loved to watch birds fly through the air and see how they landed and took off, you know, with no crash landing and mm. the control <laughs> system within a, a wing of a bird. You know, I remember sitting on a sand dunes at Manly in Sydney with Benny and he said, you know, we're looking at a flock of seagulls, mangy old seagulls, you know, there's millions of them everywhere and there's a lot of wind along the foreshore, so a lot of turbulence. He said, look, look at these birds. They never, they never crash land. You know, it's just fantastic and every takeoff is perfect. He said, look at them when they're coming into land and next time you guys go down the beach, you, you have a look through Benny's eyes. Mm. He said that you can see the feathers on the upper surface of the wings. They can feel the air slowing down. They trip the air that goes into so-called turbulence. They drop on, on the earth perfectly every time. Mm. He said there must be a thousand feathers connected to a brain smaller than a pea. This is in, in a tiny <laughs> little, in a seagull. And that flight control system, the nerves that effectively connect those feathers into that tiny little brain, that flight control system is more sophisticated than any jet military aircraft known to mankind. So this is the way the man thought, yeah. and it was fantastic. Mm. Yeah. And while he's thinking that, watching those seagulls, one of them sneaks up behind him and steals his chip. <laughs> this is also part of that pea brain's yeah. ability yeah. to do it. So can I ask, and please tell me if I'm jumping ahead here, but whose idea was it to do the wing kill? Did you guys set him this target, say we want something special from engineering, or did he just turn up one day and goes, guys, sit down, you're not going to believe what I've come up with? So it, it goes along the, the following lines, and a lot of discussion, controversy over the years in mm. terms of who designed the wing keel, because the New York York Club, and part of the rules was is that an Australian bona fide national had to be the designer, the chief designer of the boat, yeah. okay? And that was, in this case, uh, Ben Lexon. So he was in the Netherlands Ship Model Testing Facility in Holland in 1981, leading into the 1983 America's Cup. This is a cup that we won, right, with Australia too. Yep. And uh, he was working in the, on new delta-shaped keels, which is conventional shapes of the keels at that era. Mm. And he was having a lunch down in the cafeteria of this high-tech, one of the most advanced towing tank facilities in the world. And he met some Fokker Friendship design engineers who were working on U.S submersible, basically torpedo development. And he was going crazy because he wasn't getting any improvement really in the mm. so-called sweep back of the keel and so on. And he was there for about five months going nuts by himself, just trying to find the next big thing. And these guys said, you know, what are you doing? So a keel, give it lift and you need stability. So they said, well, why don't you reverse the taper and put winglets? And he'd never, at that stage, so we're talking about 1981, the, the word winglet was a secret terminology wasn't bantered around at all. Right. So one thing led to another and he created the wing keel as a result. Now we see now winglets on most commercial jets, you know, those little tips. Yeah. That was all part of it yep. to smooth out the flow and reduce the so-called induced drag. You know, when you see a plane going through the stratosphere, occasionally you see vapor trails off the tips of the wings. Yeah. That's the air going from the one surface of the wing to the other spins to such high velocity that it, it vaporizes and you get the tail tip. So this massive energy loss of a plane going through the air, massive energy loss of a boat going through the water if you can't smooth it out. There was upsides and downsides to the design. However, it was Telegram in those days, a long time ago. He said, we have a breakthrough. We've got to come over. And we were over in England at the time and Bondi and myself and a few of those boys went across. The software programs in that era were, you know, very crude. He said, we're going to win this fucking race by half an hour. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, Jesus. <laughs> Benny, what, you know, we looked at this thing, I shook my head, you know. Because you'd asked them not to take any risks, well, hadn't you? You'd been like, just, let's be sensible Well, I've been this. involved with so many dogs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You mentioned particularly, and I like this, you mentioned that. That Benny, for all his um, amazing ability, had also designed a, a boat for Bondi that you said was an absolute dog. Mm. You weren't super confident that he was going to do this, and then suddenly he shows up with this. So, you know, I was confident if we get a decent boat and we could play the game, if we could play the game, we could get a team that could go head-to-head -head with the Yanks and be successful. Yeah. But you were sold on the wing kill from the start. You go, I get it. I get the engineering. 
this is a secret weapon? No. <laughs> okay. I, I looked at this thing and I thought, interesting, is it going to work? Okay, we didn't know. We did not know. Yeah. And you know what? We went yeah. sailing on day one and the thing was not that good at all. Yes. Uh, we had a conventional boat, Challenge 12, yeah. it was in uh, Fremantle in Western Australia. And, uh, you know, we went up wind into the wind, almost boat for boat with this conventional boat. We went down, set the spinnakers, and the conventional boats just sailed away from us. It's an old God, you know. What have we done? Well, <laughs> we had the option of getting Challenge 12, you know, as part of the Plan yes. B. But we developed, developed, and developed, eventually took it to America. We still didn't know which boat was better. Took it to the US, developed our sails around the, you know, different type of characteristics of this Australia too. Started to become competitive, so-called downwind with the spinnakers up, and we could play the game. So the differential wasn't that big. The psychology, however, of keeping, <laughs> keeping the boat covered yeah. and secret as it turns out, we didn't realise, but as soon as it turns out, it was becoming a bigger and bigger deal as the summer rolled on. It drove them mad. They couldn't comprehend it and that they didn't know what it was. Because you kept it covered, That's just right. for those that don't know, there were skirts around it when it was out of the water. Yes. So no one had seen it. And you say that if they'd seen it, they'd probably looked at it and gone, oh, yeah. It was. You said it was a little bit the psychology of them not knowing what it was. Well, that was a big deal. So you remember, you know, Dennis wrote this book, No Excuses to Lose. You got all the bases covered. There's yeah. no reason. Well, they didn't know what they were racing against. And our win-loss ratio against the other challenges, because we had to beat the Canadians, the French, the Brits, uh, Italians, and so on, before we had the right to challenge yeah. for the America's Cup. And our win-loss ratio was pretty good. You know, we won 46 of the 55 races over the six months of racing against yeah. these other characters. So we were pretty damn competitive. But the total package, the sale development, all of that stuff became really, really sophisticated. What point did you start to think that we've got something that could work here with that with Australia too, that boat? Well, we knew that we had something pretty, the package was very, very good against the foreign challenges, right? But the interesting thing about this thing called the America's Cup, the first time you actually sail against the defending syndicate is day one of the America's Cup. So you had no idea, no comparison. Mm. So it was really interesting in terms of are we in the ball game or not? Because Australia had already successfully won the selection trials of three previous America's Cup challenges, but been blown off the track by the US defense program. Mm. When it was in the water, did they not send down divers to have a look at the keel? The answer is yes, they did. Yeah. And uh, we caught one lot, you know, <laughs> so took them to the coppers. You know. <laughs> 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 I'm surprised it wasn't Dennis Connor <laughs> yeah. himself. You know, I have to got, see this. Got rid of the, uh, you know, the film. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. So they were that serious. It they was, were really it was, worried. It was full on, yeah. Mm. <laughs> Perhaps we skip to when you, you're about to show up in America to race. And the build-up to this, to those that of certain age, you know, there's no internet. No. There's four TV channels in Australia. So, you know, the, everyone is following this. Australia's come through. A drought's just ended. Tough economic times. That's there's right. been political turmoil. Yeah. Montreal Olympics has not gone well. Mm. The 1980s Olympics have been effectively cancelled or yep. no golds there. We send a very small team. So this is a country starved of sporting success, but also there's a new prime minister in Bob Hawke. I think he's been in about nine months when you go over the US. Yep. So for people that I know, that this was something that the nation focused on in a way that I, I can't think of, you know, we've had the Matildas recently. And Kathy Freeman Kathy maybe Freeman in, a, in her 400 in the exactly. Olympics. But I can't, in my childhood yep. and my life, I cannot remember her biggest sporting occasion or something that was more, when you get up early and you get out of bed and your family huddle around a TV, mm. I think there is something very special in play uh, to do that. Yeah. And and that was being replicated in every lounge room around Australia at the time. It's amazing. And it's around the world in so many ways. Yes. Yes. So the stories we get. Dennis Connor was on the front cover of Time, I think, at one point. And Australia too was yeah. on the front cover of Time yeah. in America before we raced. And no, no pressure. Well, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So when you get there, do you feel this sense? Because the, the establishment there, the New York Yacht Club, is they're not there to help you. No. And do you get that sense straight away? That... We were in the in the cauldron. We were, I use this word war and, it, you know, I've never been to war. It's nothing like the real thing, but uh, that's how it was. 
did we understand the full significance of what was happening back in Australia? Look, no one could have, in their right mind, could have imagined the celebrations that happened in Australia when we won. Mm. No one. Like I met the, a bloke the other day who was going across Sydney Harbour Bridge. He said that when we crossed the line, the traffic stopped on Sydney Harbour Bridge. People got out of their cars and hugging each other as strangers. <laughs> mm. You know, the celebration yeah. from what we can see, not dissimilar to the end of World War II. Mm-hmm. Our Prime Minister put a jacket on over the top of another jacket. Yep. <laughs> Probably my most defining <laughs> image of that day. And we all know, declared it an unofficial public holiday. Yeah. Can I ask you, when you, people forget we were down in this series, so everyone knows the result. Mm. Everyone knows the answer, but we were down. We were on the ropes at one stage in this series. Yeah, we're 3-1 down. So the, the Americans only had to win one more race and it was game over yet again. And we had to win three on the trot. But you said it was a narrow 3-1 down. Like you, you felt that even though you were 3-1 down, you'd had first two races of gear problems. Yeah. 132 years, no one has beaten the Americans. Mm. You're 3-1 down, but you're thinking... I think this is a close three-one. I think. Well, what gave you that sense that you thought we could well, actually come back? Yeah. The sense in the team, in the organisation, was a great sense of frustration that we got ourselves into a three-one down situation. We felt much better than that. You know, the team felt better as individuals, as a technology package. We didn't really have any breakages for the whole summer, and then would you believe the first two races of the America's Cup, some stuff broke. It was just crazy. Mm. All it did reflect is our maintenance program wasn't up to scratch and we had to reconfigure our thinking and, who, you know, personnel. But um, we had uh, situations where we could play the game. Yeah. We weren't being blown away by the Yanks at all. Being a 3-1, like, for God's sake, you know, was, let's just get our act together here. And uh, within any sport, you talk about one step at a time, one minute at a time, one game at a time, one day at a time. Mm. It was very, very simple. If we just go out there and generate our own personal best, then they'll invite us back tomorrow to play the game yet again, you know. How was Alan Bond when you were 3-1 down? What, what was well, his he mood? Was, he was terrific. Yeah. Yeah, he grew up through lo- losing the America's Cups because he'd already lost three times. Right. He didn't panic. Now, whether he panicked with his mates, I don't know, but I always felt that, you know, he had my back. Even though I'd lost confidence halfway through the Cup in terms of starting, you know, my time and distance was off the pace. So we had to go back and do... In one of our late days, get a guy called Harold Cudmore in, and we did a whole series of starts over one day, and that really helped me in terms of get my the flow back into my thinking and my decision making. You know, it was all part and parcel. But um, now Bondi was very mature, I must say. Yeah. And so you win the next two. I don't think there'd ever been a race six in the America's Cup, but That's no right. one has pushed this far. So no. you're you're you get into like it's unknown territory for the Americans. Could you sense the panic in the Americans? Not panic, no, but, uh, you know, it was huge. Yeah. You'll love this story. So first race of the America's Cup, okay, so we, this is before we got into three all. Yeah. Okay, it was zero zero, right? Bob Hawke and Paul Keeney were in town. They came over for an international monetary conference in Washington, D.C., and they yeah. came down to, would you <laughs> believe, happened, they, 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 they no, blew into town okay, <laughs> with the Australian flag on their Australian wool jumpers. Right. You know, look back and it's ridiculous. Okay. <laughs> yeah. The whole the Australian flag emblazoned on their chest. <laughs> so, uh, but it was color TV then. It wasn't black and white. You know, we leave the dock and you couldn't really, the television cameras were there, the uh, helicopters, the fixed wind aircraft. You couldn't really communicate more than a meter in front. Right. You can't visualize this. You know, even though I used to talk to the team about it. The intensity was just another world, first race of the America's Cup. And so the Prime Minister comes down and we're about to leave the dock, plus or minus one minute of nine o'clock. Boxing camera flag's about to be brought out. Men at work down under is about to blare out from our tender black swan, like it's full on. Yeah, okay? yes. You look at armies over the last 1,000 years and they go to war with symbols. So we created the boxing camera flag there. Yeah. The red gloves for aggression, the pumped up chest for the pride of a nation, taking on the world. That was part of that was our imaging and the and men at work down under was our battle hymn. Okay, so we're ready to rock. Mm. Had no idea about how competitive or not we we're going to be, but that was part of the you know the positioning here. Okay, the prime minister of the country comes down about five minutes to nine in the morning, and I'm on the stern of the boat, the back of the boat. I said, "Well, good morning, Mr. Prime Minister. <laughs> yeah, what else do you say?" <laughs> And he says, Johnny says, call me Bob. He says, uh, what are you going to do? And I said, well, Bob, we'll 
we'll give it our best shot. He says, bullshit, destroy the bastards. Talk <laughs> <laughs> with something else. Yeah, yeah you know, absolutely. You talk about seizing the moment. Yeah. And he believed it, and it's true, you know. When he said anyone who sacks anyone for being late <laughs> for work is a bum, yeah. That was not pre-rehearsed. No. It just came out of his brain, you know? It was a wild moment. People need to understand that the boxing kangaroo had its origins, its genesis, which has now become commonplace and part of our yeah. our national iconography, had its birth at that America's Cup. Sure did. And we sold the boxing kangaroo flag to the Australian Olympic Committee for $1. Good on you. And that's our national flag when we go to battle on the sporting front internationally. And you know what? The men at work down under is our battle hymn still. It is yeah. indeed. It's amazing. No, yeah. no, you got it right. Yeah. Because this was part of, in the lead up to this, you, you said a lot of it was convincing your crew that they were as good as the Americans, yeah. if not better. You yeah. you said, thought there was a real psychological game that needed to be played before you even got on the water. It's intimidating to live in the US to take on America, you know, yeah. on anything. And the history of the thing, that no one ever done this before. You know, there was a psychological battle as well as a technology battle mm. and a sailing battle out on the track and this whole issue of how do we present ourselves. So I brought in Laurie Hayden, who was a sports psychologist with Carlton Footy Club when Mike Fitzpatrick then was captain of two winning premierships way, mm. way back in the early 80s. I, look, you know, I, I won the bronze in the 76 Olympics. After the winning the bronze, probably three or four months afterwards, and bronze was fantastic. You know, we had no coaching, no money, no nothing, and East Germany was first, Russia was second, Australia was third. So I'm very proud of that. But the point is, is that three or four months later, after that Olympic Games, I concluded I could have won the Olympic gold just as easily as the bronze if I was mentally tougher. Mm. And as a result, I connected with uh, Mike Fitzpatrick and asked him about this uh, head shrink they had. Laurie Hayden, as we call them in those days. <laughs> and I uh, brought Laurie into the program. So this is a long time ago. It was 40 yeah. years ago. And he was good with some of the team, not all. They did kind of a bit of a guru. You, can we trust him? Mm. For me, he was extremely important. As an unemotional, professional sounding board, when I had issues, I could talk to him about different things from my leadership point of view and others. And he was very, very good for the program. Mm. So anyway, that was all part and parcel of taking on the US of A. Yeah. And so that all builds up. It's going right back from you've done a degree on this, you've done a master's on this, <laughs> you've lived in America, you've challenged. He's watched his great granddad. Yeah. yeah. Lipton go around. Well, this has been brewing for some time. Literally brewing since you were a boy. And then suddenly it's the last race. It's all tied up. Race seven. I mean, the pressure must have just been like nothing you'll ever experience again, surely. Yeah, that's right. It was a... Um... You know, in a bubble, total bubble. We got rid of all newspapers, television sets out of our crew house. Didn't want to know what the rest of the world. The only people that could get through was my mother, you know, <laughs> from Australia. It's the only call I'd take. Yeah. You don't knock back mum. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, basically that was it. And we were in our, you know, a total bubble. But we understood, look, I'm guessing a quarter of what was happening back in Australia, but not more. Not all It was it, huge yeah. back here. Yeah. Lights going on at two in the morning saying, wake up, wake up, you know, turn your television sets on. I, I remember being gotten out of bed. I want to know what was going on on the water. So yeah. you're the only person who can really tell us from on board Australia 2 in race seven. Yeah. In your own words, how does this play out? Well, I guess there's all different angles to it. The Americans were highly competitive that final day. They found mm. a loophole in the rule able to take a ton of weight out of the boat and add sail area. <laughs> now, that, you know, how do you figure that? Right to the very end. Yeah, but they did. They nailed the weather forecast. It was and you knew end. this was happening no. or you found out later? We found out during the, while they were doing it. Oh, while they were. Yeah. But it was before the race. Okay. So you suddenly yes. realised, oh, they're doing it. They took a day off and then we found out what they were doing. <laughs> and it was legal within the interpretation of the rules, yet another interpretation. So they came out all highly, highly competitive, very fast. The leadership changed about seven times during the race, so mm. it was full on. And both boats were highly competitive against each other. So as a skipper, I maybe have to make a thousand key decisions, key decisions in terms of steering the boat and the tactics and working with Huey, my tactician, and uh, Grant Simmer, tactical navigator, and main sheet hand trimmers and so on, like a whole lot of stuff. It was like a extremely well-oiled special forces machine. Mm. It's the closest thing I could come to it. 
when we're almost dead out of the race, uh, I think it's so-called the fifth leg, but fourth leg, I guess, mm. we're 57 seconds behind at one stage. Yeah. Right? Apparently, Chink Longley reminded me the other day that I said words to the effect of, guys, we've got to keep concentrating, otherwise we may lose this race. And we could hardly read their numbers were so far behind. <laughs> you know. yeah, right. So the concentration was huge. Yeah. Yes. That's probably one way to yeah. describe it. And looking at the data afterwards, we sailed the boat as close to perfection than we ever sailed the boat before. Mm. And we got back in the race. Uh, they panicked. Wing keel, they didn't know what they were racing against yep. in hindsight. Everything's, you know. And you reflection. could sense they were panicking? Yes. Or, yeah. yeah, we could see that. And they were so-called jiving into less breeze, trying to find more breeze. Every time you so-called jibe, make a maneuver like that, you mm. lose about a boat length and distance. So they did six or seven jibes, so all of a sudden we're back in the game. Is that the equivalent sort of like they were over-sailing the boat or something? Were they doing more? We were, were coming at them very, very rapidly, as it turns mm. out. They couldn't see that we had more wind. We were a fair way back. Right. Why? Because there's so many spectator boats at the top mark. It was like a washing machine. We're talking about mini liners here, you know, 200 yeah. feet yeah. boats. Nothing less than 100 million bucks, you know, in today's dollars. Yeah. Massive machines that, you know, all crowded around the top mark. And uh, we came around with more wind. They couldn't see that because the water was so disturbed. And then they so-called jibed away from us to uh, endeavor to find better breeze. And one th things went pear-shaped for them. Mm. And uh, they lost the big lead. That was the point. And you were hunting them. At what point do you realize that you've got them covered? I tell you, Mick, only when the gun fired. Okay. Like, you know, yeah. There's that battle then where you get ahead, but then doesn't Connor tack something like yeah. 44 times or That's something right. in one leg? Like yeah. he's, he's not going quietly. <laughs> no. When he's doing that, you have to cover him the if, whole if way. If you can. That's right. So that must mean that that's a lot of extra work and concentration for you guys. The more he's doing, the more you have to respond to. That's right. More that can go wrong. Is yeah. that what he's trying to do? Yes, and they got within a boat length of us at one stage. Like it was really close. Up that final beat to the finishing line. Yeah. You're just full concentration? What's in your head? Are you just so busy well, focused on what you're doing? You know, we talk about in the zone, yeah. okay, in the flow of the moment. You, within AFL, parlance, you know, people like Pendlebury, they have this incredible ability, it would appear, and that's true. They carve time and space out of nothing. And he's not fast. Pendlebury's not fast, but he does a flick or a twist or whatever. Mm. The day cost boys, you know, what they can do is just remarkable. Well, they're in their world, it's slow motion. They have time. Mm. Their brain works such that even though we're talking about microsecond decisions, they have time. We talk about the flow zone. Way back then, 40 years ago, we didn't have any of this terminology, but it's, mm. you know, it's much more better understood now. So I was in the team, but certainly I as the skipper of the boat, the captain, I was in my flow zone where things were slow motion. Mm. And the decisions coming at me that I had to make, you know, I mentioned whatever it was, a thousand key decisions. I was able to process them pretty accurately as it turns out. You know. Mick and I are obviously, you know, supreme athletes. How physically taxing. Is. I can't believe you got a Collingwood mention into the greatest sporting <laughs> yeah, moment in history. I'm very upset. We can always this. edit that out later. <laughs> uh, so how physically demanding is what you're doing yeah. in this as well? Because you, you talk a lot about the mental side. but Well, for, the race was four and a half hours. Yeah. And I'm skippering the boat yeah. you know, over that four and a half hours decision making. Physically, for the crew, for the grinders and so yeah. on, it's full on to the point of exhaustion. But that's part of the game. You get that puff of smoke. Mm. Bang, you're across the line. What are you thinking? Mick, at that stage, it was just relief. You know, relief that we could go home. Yeah. You know, we'd got the job done. We'd beaten the bastards. Mm. You know, we could go home. Are you frightened at this point of uh, some kind of protest or being beaten in the courts? Yeah. Or you don't even think about that. You've just achieved yeah. a life's dream. Yeah. yeah. It was relief and then excitement. Yeah, and then the unbelievable excitement of mm. what we'd achieved. You know, we could then start to process what had happened here. Yeah. You know, I'd been at it for 12 years. It was my fourth America's Cup, the three losing efforts, all part of the, mm. you know, learning curve in hindsight, MIT, living in the US, all of that stuff. But it was this incredible sense of excitement. Now, the question is the parties, how big were they? Yeah. Well, for the spectators and the followers, huge, absolutely huge. For us, not so. We kind of just locked into our own loved ones, our, you know, wives and kids and partners and so on and it was this supreme sense of uh, relief and pride in what we'd achieved yeah. and i remember all the colors and the literal skyrockets and 
television networks, NBC and CBS, all this stuff around me. But it was just this beautiful inner sanctum of people who had achieved something very, very special. Mm. And when we got back to the state, when Australia, for everyone became ill immediately afterwards. You know, we had no illness for six months yes. in, in America, <laughs> in Newport. And of course, when the system drops down, you know, you, you become vulnerable. Totally. I ended up over close to pneumonia, as did, did Raza. And it took me probably six months to go to a so-called dinner party to talk about nothing. And that's what people do at dinner parties. <laughs> mm. They talk about nothing <laughs> on the average. <laughs> and uh, they had no idea what I'd been through or what we'd been through. Yeah. It was like coming from Mars. How do you start a conversation? What we'd been through relative to the punter. It, it is like coming back to Earth, like for an astronaut yeah. or something. It's like... Well, I think, you know, if you come back with Swimming Australia, we did quite a lot of work with the Special Forces military. Mm. And out of a major, major conflict, they go into rehab hospitals. They don't go back and party. Mm. And we needed to, in hindsight, you know, we'd been to war and back. You know, this thing was full on. Well, it's 40 years later and we're still <laughs> talking about it and we can't get enough of it because that's how much it resonates with our yeah. history. And, you know, in a country that loves sport and uh, loves achieving on a global scale, I, I just can't think of a more important occasion in my lifetime anyway. So thank you for talking about it. You know, I'm glad it's not just a dinner party that you can't unwrap, but I, <laughs> I hope we've got into it in detail enough for you to remember. Well, the Confederation of Australian Sport voted the Australia 2 victory as the greatest team performance in the last 200 years of Australian sport. Mm. You know, something we're very yeah, proud yeah. of, of I course. think that's right. Yeah. It should be. We're going to have to let you go. A little bit of housekeeping, if we could. When you turn on the telly today and you watch the America's Cup and you see catamarans out of the water and guys on bikes instead of grinding and helmets, because if you fall off, you're probably going to die. Did you ever see it ending up here? All we knew is that in the vision of the project is, we we're talking about 1983, what will the game look like in the year 2000? Let's get there faster than anyone else in the world. Because in history tells us, you look at the Olympics and anything, these programs are improving all the time. World mm. records are smashed every four years, but any 20-year period just smashed. So we were in the business of endeavoring to get there faster than anyone else. So our, it became clear, certainly from my perspective, having been in three Olympic campaigns, it's a race with technology. Yeah. But the, if we could take our blinkers off and then start projecting forward over the horizon, to endeavour to answer your question, Mick, we had no idea, nor do we have any idea we're talking about now, yes. in 20 years' time, what the game will look like. It'll just be much further progress than what it is now. Hmm. And the only other thing I wanted to bring up with you, it's just to remind you, I may have told you this before, but a mutual friend of ours tried to join a yacht club, the Sorrento <laughs> Yacht Club, and she needed two nominees. She got my name and your name. And I still to this day suggest to her that it was my name that got her across the line. <laughs> Holds a bit more weight. Cancel each other's out. <laughs> <laughs> and that's just a great story. I'm just privileged for you to take the time out to talk to us. Thank you very much, John. It's just amazing. On your boys. If you want more Sports Bazaar, simply go to any of our socials, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. We've got the whole lot. And we also have Bazaar Plus, our membership program, where you can get even more content. The link to that is just in the show notes.